welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire, one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 129th episode of the Not A Cast titled The Art of War, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 11 in which Tyrion has to work 28 hours a day, nine days a week, just to get ready for the arrival of Stannis of House Baratheon. Well, that's just such a hardworking man he is to, to roll out the red carpet for the arrival of Stannis. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm being told he's being ready to fight Stannis. Oh, okay, okay. Oh. That's an entirely different situation, then. Yeah, he's preparing a very warm welcome for the king to actually arrive oh. in King's Landing. Nice one. Nice burn. one. Literally burn. the record and books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I cannot wait for... We are, we are just in the cusp of the Blackwater, folks. This is actually this really the start of the Battle of the Blackwater, more than mm-hmm. anything else. The next Sansa chapters where the, the fighting actually breaks out south of the Blackwater. So, man, oh, it's so, so good. Cannot wait for as we're getting to that chapter and into that actually into that part of the clash of kings so as always this episode is brought to you is brought to you by our not a small council our hand of the king wolfman zach grand maester tim bob troubleshooters of systems and designer of circuit boards lord commander of the king's guard mark n lord travis master of ships and war of the waves captain of the war galley night wolf the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the valyrian steel trident summoner the blade that brings the deep ones sir keith j master whispers lord philip the merciful master of laws Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Rack and Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Beanfort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jake assistant to the hand of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorm, Kelly, Warren of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Painfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander, the Ladies and Gentle Dems, Haldover, the Waiter for Tewell, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Rome, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall, Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave, Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harrenhal, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils Wherein Every Count Votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay. Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan. Pat, Ironwood, the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Boneway. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paran of the Bander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warrior of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrical, Captain of the Airship, Arrogance. Squire, Matt S., future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, and B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall. Thank you to all of our patrons very much. Thank you, as always, to our small counselors. 
Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from B-Word, our not a small council, Queen Bee on the Wall, who asks, Hey guys, I have a Tyrion-related question for you. Will we meet Tysha, or have we already? And if so, will she cross Tyrion's path again? How do you expect they would react to seeing each other again? And what do you think about that, Jeff? Uh, I know there's the theory that Tysha is the sailor's wife in Braavos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't particularly partake in that one, but do you? what do you think about that one, and do you think we'll see Tysha in another form? I, I think that we will see Tysha, because George was asked in 2015 whether... We will actually. What was he asked? He was asked. He was asked something specific, and he answered vaguely. He actually asked something vague, and he answered specifically. He was asked, "Where do horror? Uh, are we? Where do horrors go?" And he said, "We're going to find that out in the Winds Winter." So my assumption is that is something that George is going to reveal about Taisha in the Winds of Winter. I, I, I like you. I'm not a fan of the sailor's wife theory for that being Taisha's identity. I think that individual might be connected to Jirion or Garion, however you pronounce his name, mm-hmm. Lannister, who sailed through Bravos on his way to his doom in Valyria. Ironic, not really. Um, I, I think that Taisha is interesting to have her show up again because the question I have, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll toss this one over to you, is that how would that actually affect the story? How is that supposed to work for Tyrion when like, he's been going his entire book thinking that he's that that Taisha didn't love him, and now she does love. Now she he found out at the very end of, of the Storm of Swords that he did love her, love him rather. And then in a Dance with Dragons, he is just haunted by that. And having her show up again is having her show up again in Tyrion's arc. Is that just going to devastate Tyrion? I, I think I think it would at the very least. I think it would too. And you know, I don't want to reduce every character to purely what they bring to the structure of the narrative, because mm. obviously there's the pleasure of reading how a scene is executed. And just the the interesting emotional details. You know, I love Quentin Martell's storyline, and that is 100% unnecessary to the larger story <laughs> structure of A Song of Ice and Fire. But thematically and emotionally, it sums up the whole thing, I think, really well. I think it could be written really effectively with Taisha. Uh, I also completely agree with you about the Sailor's Wife theory, by the way. I think it's definitely Uncle Uncle Jerry uh, who, who uh, <laughs> knocked her up with Lannister Blonde. But um, as far as Taisha, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, it works so effectively that Tyrion is haunted by her and her memory and dance and specifically wants to find out where she went as if that's something he can really do or if there's anything he could really do about what happened. And for me, it would make more sense emotionally if he just doesn't get to fulfill that. Hmm. And she's just gone and she's a mystery and maybe she's living a miserable life and maybe she's living a wonderful life. Maybe she's dead. And Tyrion never gets to find out about that because it's it's something that haunts him, like something that he didn't get to have. Like like in the way that like we talked about the House of the Undying, no one ever really, really knows Rhaegar. Right. Because he's always supposed to be just beyond us. And I, for me, I felt like Taisha was supposed to be that for Tyrion. But I could, you know, I could definitely imagine a situation in which she is brought back explicitly into the narrative. And it works and it works really well as part of Tyrion's, you know, struggle with his own darkness and whether he wants to be alienated from humanity forever. I thought that's what Penny was for. Right. I thought that was her role in the story now, like almost in lieu of Taisha. But I could definitely see a situation in which that is written well. Let me ask you a question. I'm sure you've, you've heard of a butterfly's theory about the uh, the dwarf's penny. Right. Are yeah. you a subscriber to Penny being Taisha's daughter through with Tyrion? Part of me is like, I, it would be nice if like all of the dwarf characters weren't like connected, like, you know, through family lines. But <laughs> yeah, right. that's not really a literary criticism. That's just like, oh, I kind of wish that wasn't the case. That doesn't make it not the case. Yeah. 
that makes it such a literal connection. I wish, you know, part of me again wishes that the Tyrion-Penny relationship was more just like these are dwarves in different side of the social spectrum. What do they make of each other? Right. But if if Penny is, you know, if her life and death, as it seems, especially from Tyrion's released Winds chapter, is so crucial to Tyrion's arc, then a, a direct connection there. I don't think it's like there's a mystery and that's what solves it. Like, I could easily imagine the Tyrion-Penny relationship existing as it is with no further edification upon it. But all the evidence for that theory, I think, is strong. Do you, what do you think about it? I'm in the same boat. I, I'm actually completely undecided. whether the, I think it's a really good theory. It's one of those theories that I like a lot. And I think that our friend, I think both of our friends, because we met her at, at Ice and Firecon, um, Nobody Suspects a Butterfly, mm-hmm. wrote a really, really good um, theory for it. So if you take a look for it on Google, take a look for it. It's, it's an excellent theory. Uh, worth your time looking up. Uh, again, I'm just like completely undecided about the theory altogether, whether it's true or not. I, I think it could make sense. And I think, <laughs> honestly, the, the reason why I think it makes the most sense is because it's another aspect where George can throw more incest into the story. I mean, because you know how you have Tyrion, Penny who's attracted to yep. Tyrion and Tyrion who's rejecting Penny. And of course, that would mean that they have to be related in some context. Again, these are the Lannisters. And so at, at some level, the, the incest is, is just a... It's it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a bug it's a uh, it's a feature it's a feature oh, so to speak yeah. right and this is you know much as obviously I would kill for any version of the winds of winter in my hand this is the most blunt obvious stuff in winds is the stuff I'm not looking forward to as much like with the Tyrion and Penny stuff and with some of the Stoneheart stuff I'm like this is just going to be such a hammer to the reader's face yes in terms of what the meaning is and maybe you know it could definitely be raw and cathartic but like the stuff I'm looking forward to in winds the most is the more mysterious stuff. And the one was like, oh, this could go in any number of different directions. And I look at Tyrion and Penny and I just go, okay, so he's going to kill her. And I, I, I think the relationship is really interesting. But in terms of where it's heading, I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm just not, you know, not right. that I'm squeamish about it. I just think this is this is this seems like it's going to be one note in terms of where it's heading. And maybe Tysha being involved in the mix, maybe that'll that could change that up. I'm trying to be optimistic here. That's a good way. Optimism is always uh, accepted and and welcomed here in the Not a Cast podcast. Good, good. Thank you, Lady B-Word, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can find show notes, merch, Fever Dream episodes, and 34 bonus episodes like our just-released final part, at last, of The Second Coming, our five-part analysis of the Winds of Winter chapter, The Forsaken. Yes, and if you're listening on the release day for this episode, that episode is out for all of our poor fellow and above patrons over again at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-A-F. And if you aren't a patron, please consider becoming one. We would really appreciate it. And it's a lot of fun for those folks who are a part of our community there. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion, he had survived the ride at King's Landing, found out about Vara's totally innocuous backstory, and very humorously and very humorously called himself a monster, demon monkey, but was still going to defend King's Landing from the king? Stannis, yeah, he's the king, guys. Let's find out how Tyrion props up Joffrey's reign of terror and sabotages the return of the king in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 11. If you die stupidly, I'm going to feed your body to the goats, Tyrion threatened as the first load of stone crows pushed off from the quay. Shagga laughed, the half-man has no goats. I'll get some just for you. Threats to feed friends' bodies to goats. Boys will be boys. Welcome to the boys chapter in A Clash of Kings. Dawn is breaking over the boys as Shaga and the last of his men board the ferry. Tyrion had already sent the burned men, Black Ears, and Moon Brothers into the King's Wood Forest, and now he was sending the Stone Crows into the forest. Tyrion tells Shaga that he's not to fight battles, just to conduct hit and run raids, attack baggage trains, and kill stragglers. Also, string the dead up in trees. Always attack at night because then Shaga laid a hand atop Tyrion's head. 
All this I learned from Dolph, son of Holger, before my beard had grown. This is the way of war in the Mountains of the Moon. The Kingswood is not the Mountains of the Moon, and you won't be fighting milk snakes and painted dogs. And listen to the guides I'm sending. They know this wood as you would know your own mountains. Heed their counsel, and they'll serve you well. Shaga says he'll listen to Tyrion's morons. He promises very solemnly, which I just love. And then he leads his horse into the ferry. Tyrion watches him go, feeling weird, knowing that he was giving up some of his best personal defenders. Of course, Tyrion still had Bronn's brave companions, eh, the sellswords that he's purchased. About the same. Their leaders have been bought with gold, promises of lands, and knighthoods after the battle was won. They drunk his wine, laughed at his jests, and called each other sir until they were all staggering. All but Bronn himself, who'd only smiled that insolent dark smile of his and afterwards said, They'll, king for, they'll kill for that king knighthood, but don't ever expect that they'll die for it. Tyrion had no such delusion. In other similarly good news for Tyrion, the Gold Cloaks war were only a little better. Not much. Sure, there were 6,000 of them, more than the Sellswords at least. Jaslyn, though, warns Tyrion that there's a few traitors in the mix, but the bigger problem is that most of the new recruits are green with no watch or battle experience. They might fight hard at first, but when the first man breaks and the battle goes bad, they're gonna run. Even the more veteran city watchmen, the 2,000 or so hired under Robert, not Cersei, Tyrion makes a specific note of that, were only watchmen, not soldiers. A watchman was not truly a soldier. Lord Tywin Lannister had been fond of saying. Of knights and squires and men-at-arms, Tyrion had no more than 300. Soon enough, he must test the truth of another of his father's sayings. One man on the wall was worth ten beneath him. Tyrion joins Bronn after seeing Shaga off by the docks amidst merchants, fishers, sex workers, and beggars. Those fortunate and rich enough to buy fish were haggling over all the recent catches. The rate of inflation was seriously high as goods were scarce as seafood was the only food coming into the city these days. Chloe, if you're listening, which I believe you are, I'm assuming is the only one happy, happy by this development. The gold cloaks push people out of Tyrion's way with the shaft of their spears, and these people curse Tyrion. You don't say. Someone throws a rotten fish at Tyrion and explodes at his feet. Starving children fight over the pieces of the stinking fish. Bang up job team Lannister. Tyrion hears hammers ringing and thinks at least that's going well. But Tyrion is unhappy with all the ramshackle houses built up against the exterior of the city walls. He thinks that needs to be gone or else Stannis wouldn't even need ladders to climb into the city. Tyrion called Bronn to his side. Assemble a hundred men and burn everything you see here between the water's edge and the city walls. He waved his stubby fingers, taking in all the waterfront squalor. I want nothing left standing, do you understand? The black-haired sellsword turned his head, considering the task. Them as own all this won't like that much. I never imagined they would. So be it. They'll have something else to curse the evil monkey demon for. Some may fight. See that they lose. What do we do with all those that live here? Let them have a reasonable time to remove their property and then move them out. Try not to kill any of them. They're not the enemy. And no more rapes. Keep your men in line, damn it. They're sellswords, not septon, said Bronn. Next you'll be telling me you want them sober. It couldn't hurt. I, I just don't understand why anyone thinks the Lancers are the bad guys in this chapter or in all of the story, right? Tyrion wishes he could make the walls of King's Landing twice as tall and three times as thick, but it probably wouldn't matter. It didn't matter for Storm's End, Harrenhal, or Winterfell after all. And this leads Tyrion to a curious line of thought, to think about Winterfell and how the castle made people feel safe, even if it wasn't as massive as Harrenhal or as impregnable as Storm's End. When Varys told Tyrion about the fall of the castle, it had been a shock to him, and Tyrion thought that the gods giveth the Starks Harrenhal and taketh away Winterfell. No doubt Tyrion should be rejoicing. 
Rob Stark would have to turn north now. If he could not defend his own home and hearth, he was no... Hearth, that's not a word. He was no sort of king at all. It meant reprieve for the West and for House Lannister. And yet, Tyrion had only the vaguest memory of Theon Greyjoy from his time with the Starks. A callow youth, always smiling, skilled with a bow. It was hard to imagine him as Lord of Winterfell. The Lord of Winterfell would always be a Stark. Tyrion remembers the Winterfell godswood, all the trees, and the giant heart tree at the center of it. He could almost smell the place, earthy and brooding, the smell of centuries, and he remembered how dark the wood had been even by day. The wood was Winterfell. It was the north. I never felt so out of place as I did when I walked there. So much an unwelcome intruder. He wondered if the great choice would feel it too. The castle might well be theirs, but never that godswood. Not in a year, or ten, or fifty. Again, please check out our Patreon episode with Joe Buckley for more of our tour of Winterfell. Good episode. Tyrion goes through the Mudgate, trying once again to rationalize how Winterfell's fall was a good thing for Team Lannister. He passes by three trebuchets sitting in the market square, moving through the, quote, human tide. Beyond the trebuchets, there are fewer people, and Tyrion moves back to the Red Keep uneventfully. Unfortunately, at the Tower of the Hand, Tyrion encounters a dozen traitor captains righteously upset about their vessels being impounded by the crown. Tyrion apologizes sincerely to them, saying that they'll be compensated at the end of the war. But it really didn't satiate their anger. What if you should lose, my lord? One Bravosi asked. Then apply to King Stans for your compensation. Alas. When Tyrion is finally able to disentangle himself from duties of the state, he hears bells ringing, and he waddles across the Red Keep Yard, knowing he's going to be late for the naming of two new Kingsguard members. He arrives just in time to see Joffrey putting on white cloaks on the two newest members of the Kingsguard, while the High Septon leads the men and their vows to the Seven. He approved of his sister's choice of Sir Balon Swan to take the place of the slain Preston Greenfield. The Swans are Barcher Lords, proud, powerful, and cautious. Pleading illness, Lord Julian, Swan, had remained in his castle, taking no part, but his eldest son had ridden with Renly and now Stannis, while Balon the Younger served at King's Landing. If he'd had a third son, Tyrion suspected that one would be off with Robb Stark. If it was not perhaps the most honorable course, but it showed good sense. Whoever won the Iron Throne, the Swans intended to survive. In addition to being well-born, young Sir Balon was valiant, courtly, and skilled at arms. Good with a lance, better with a morning star, superb with a bow. He would serve with honor and courage. Alas, Tyrion could not say the same for Cersei's second choice, Sir Osmond Kettleblack. He looked formidable enough. He stood six feet and six inches, most of its sinew and muscle, and his hooked nose, bushy eyebrows, and spade-shaped brown beard gave his face a fierce aspect, so long as he did not smile. Lowborn, no more than Hedge Knight, Kettleblack was utterly dependent on Cersei for his advancement, which was doubtless why she picked him. Sir Osmond is as loyal as he is brave, she told Joffrey when she put forward his name. It was true, unfortunately. The good Sir Osmond had been selling her secrets to Bronn since the day she'd hired him, but Tyrion could scarcely tell her that. Tyrion thinks he shouldn't complain too much he'd have another spy near his sister, and he couldn't possibly be a worse knight than that Sir Boros Blount, who is currently rotting in a dungeon at Rosby. Brave, brave Sir Boros had courageously surrendered the moment Sir Jaslyn Bywater and his gold cloak showed up to take Tommen prisoner. Cersei wanted Boros stripped of his Kingsguard cloak for being a coward, and a traitor. She was replacing him with somebody nearly as hollow as Boros. Tyrion grows bored with all the praying, vowing, and anointing. He sees Lady Tanda, noticing that her daughter is absent. He was hoping to see Shay, and while Varys was reporting that Shay was well, Tyrion wanted to vouch for that himself. 
The last time Tyrion saw Shay, she was asking about whether she might bring some of his jewelry that Tyrion gave her. Tyrion didn't want to disappoint her, but uh, no, she can't go around wearing too much jewelry as it'll raise suspicion. Okay, maybe a piece or three, but no more. Tyrion remembers Shay's look of disappointment, but wagers that he's keeping her safe. Really, Tyrion? When the ceremony is finally complete, Joffrey marches out with Sir Balin and Sir Osmond between him. Tyrion sticks around to chat with his High Septon. Wait, his? Yes, it was Tyrion's choice. He informs the High Septon that he needs the gods on their side for the battle to come. Tell them that Stannis has vowed to burn the great Septon Baelor. Is it true, my lord? Asked the High Septon, a small, shrewd man with a wispy white beard and a wizened face. Tyrion shrugged. Eh, maybe. Stannis burned the gods with a storm's end, and as an offering to the Lord of the Light, if he'd offend the old gods, why should he spare the new? Tell them that. Tell them that any man who thinks to give aid to the usurper betrays the gods as well as his rightful king. The High Septon says, sure, he'll do that. Pray for the king too. Whatever you want, Tyrion. Really, why did the, Star why did the Sparrow movement rise into Feast for Crows? It's a mystery. Next, Tyrion is on to a meeting with Halion the Pyromancer, but before he takes that meeting, he decides to read through letters that Maester Franken left him. He finds an old letter from Dora Martell telling him that Storm's End has fallen, but then he sees another letter. Balin Greyjoy on Pike, who styled himself King of the Isles and the North, invited King Joffrey to send an envoy to the Iron Islands to fix the borders between the realms and discuss a possible alliance. Tyrion read the letter three times and set it aside. Lord Balin's longships would have been a great help against the fleet sailing up from Storm's End, but they were thousands of leagues away on the wrong side of Westeros, and Tyrion was far from certain that he wanted to give away half the realm. Perhaps I should spill this one on Cersei's lap, or take it to the council. Having finished doing nothing, Tyrion decides to admit Helene to find out how things fare, fare with the alchemists and the wildfire. To Tyrion's shock and suspicion, Helene reports that there is a shit at a wildfire, 13,000 jars of the stuff. Tyrion warns the man that if he's trying to play them false by filling the pots with sewage, Tyrion's not fucking paying them. Helene starts squeaking that everything is correct, you see? They found 300 jars under the dragon pit. There's no reason to interrogate why those jars were there. Let's move on to talk about the hilarious story about some drunk John, who is cavorting with sex workers in the dragon pit, and then this Einstein Wiley Cody his ass by falling through a hole, and then this Aristotle decided to drink a jar of wildfire thinking that it was booze. It was not. Tyrion says that there was a prince who once drank wildfire. Arian Brightflame, but since there were no dragons flying over the city, our Westerosi Alan Turing probably didn't turn into a dragon either. Tyrion thinks that the dragon pit had been abandoned for a half century, for a century and a half rather, and thinks, yeah, maybe storing the wildfire made sense, but why didn't Lord Russert tell anyone? Good question, Tyrion, who knows? Regardless, these 300 jars don't account for all the new jars that the pyromancers are claiming. There are now several thousand new jars. Explain yourself, Helene. Flop Sweat Helene rubs his soaked brow with his sleeve and says they're working so hard. Oh, working hard. Oh, so why weren't you working hard before, Tyrion asks? They, they, they were, Tyrion. You see, th th there's these spells. They're so delicate and hard to do. Tyrion cuts him off, knowing that Sir Jason's Bywater is there waiting, and he's really annoyed with having to deal with this guy. Yes, yes, you have secret spells. How splendid. What of them? They mm, seem to be working better than they were. Helene smiled weakly. You don't suppose there are any dragons about, do you? Not unless you found one under the dragon pit. Why? Oh, pardon. I just remembered mm, something old Wisdom Pallader told me once when I was mm, an acolyte. He asked why so many of our spells seemed, mm, well, not as effectual as the scrolls would have us believe. And he said it was mm, because magic had begun to go out in the world the day the last dragon died. Sorry to disappoint you, Tyrion said, but I've seen no dragons. I have noticed the king's justice lurking about, however. Should any of these fruits you are selling me turn out to be filled with anything but wildfire, you'll be seeing him as well. 
Helene beats feet out of the chambers, nearly knocking Sir, no wait, Lord Jaslyn Bywater over. Tyrion asks the new-made lord how the defenses are and then asks Tommen how Tommen is doing. And Jaslyn reports that Tommen is well. He's adopted a fawn, one that Joffrey couldn't murder, like the last one that he murdered for a jerkin. Tommen asks after Cersei once in a while and often begins letters to Marcella but never finishes them, which is just, that's just so precious. He doesn't miss Joffrey at all, though. Doesn't even think about him. Tyrion asks if arrangements have been made if they lose the battle, and Jaslyn reports that, yeah, arrangements are made. And they are? Jaslyn says that Tyrion told him not to say anything to anyone. Tyrion smiles and thinks that if the city is taken, Tyrion might be taken prisoner, and it'd be better if Stannis didn't know where Joffrey's heir was. That heir, of course, being Tommen. After Jessen leaves, Varys arrives, and he has intelligence to share. Men are such face, faithless creatures, he said by way of greeting. Tyrion sighed. Who's the traitor today? The eunuch handed him a scroll. So much villainy. It sings a sad song for our age. Did honor die with our fathers? Tyrion says that Tywin, his dad, maybe, isn't dead yet, but he knows some of the names. Rich dudes, traders, merchants, craftsmen. Why are they conspiring against the Lannisters? Well, according to Faris, they think Stannis is going to win, and they want to share in his victory. They allegedly call themselves the Antlermen. Tyrion jokes that Stannis changed his sigil, so they really should call themselves the Hot Hearts. Hey, what a coincidence. My new metal cover band's name, the Hot Hearts. But then Tyrion notices a name on Varys' list. Among the names on the list was the Master Armor, Solorium. I suppose this means I won't be getting that terrifying helm with the, with the demon horns, Tyrion complained, as he scrawled the order for the man's arrest. And that is A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 11. Now look, I'm not saying I don't miss the House of the Undying, but I'm glad to be back with Tyrion. Glad to be here in King's Landing. What did you think, sir? Yeah, what a breath of fresh air this chapter is after the last one. Don't get me wrong, I love the House of the Undying and all its wonderful uh, David Lynch atmosphere for the live stream I'm wearing. This, this shirt Chloe got me for my birthday. Nice. Directed by David Lynch, I love it. But after three episodes spent in the House of the Undying, I am ready for a chapter just about politics. And Tyrion Eleven is happy to oblige. This yeah. chapter is overstuffed with moves and counter moves in the Game of Thrones. It's all about Tyrion putting on a powerful face for Stannis while barely managing to keep his own house in order. There's an exhilaration that matches all of the wheeling and dealing in Tyrion's early chapters in this book, but now there's an extra layer of desperation. It's all about to blow up, literally. Isn't it? And this is just a, a fun chapter like you're alluding to, and you can see how George is structuring his plotting. Before this chapter, we had some extremely important and sometimes magical shit happen for like three or four straight chapters. And now we're back to Tyrion, who is conducting day-to-day -day operations in King's Landing. It's kind of actually the same sort of structure that George utilized for the Red Wedding, where we get Catelyn, Arya, Catelyn, Arya, bing, bang, boom, boom. And then would you know it, but we're back to a day in the life of Tyrion of House Lannister. Now, part of that structure is George giving his audience a breather so that our heart rates can kind of get back to our resting rate. The greater part of that execution, in my opinion, is that George is showing that even as an age of wonder and terrors coils around the world, the mortgage, that's what's got to get paid. The world's just going to keep on trucking as usual. Uh, until the apocalypse actually arrives on their doorstep. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. I think that's exactly what, what George is going for by, by putting these kinds of chapters together. And George starts this chapter out on an optimistic note. Tyrion and Chaga are bantering affectionately, and the dawn is pleasant out on the river. It's the kind of moment if you're very busy like Tyrion is, you just, you just pause for a moment to go, ah, I have to enjoy this, I have to appreciate this, <laughs> this nice still moment. But the specifics of what they're here to do ground the situation in life or death urgency. Tyrion has sent all the clansmen, one group by one, one tribe by, by another, into the Kingswood. 
As Tyrion instructs Shaga on guerrilla tactics, we the reader realize what's happening. Stannis is now on the march, and Tyrion wants to slow him down a little bit. Right, and we're right at the edge of the Battle of the Blackwater. The mountain clans mm-hmm. are departing from the city on into the forest. And that means I get to inflict all of you with my military shittery for like the next <laughs> four months. It's going to be so great. Strap in. So to kind of get at the broad strokes here, what Tyrion is attempting to do is to prep the battlefield by wearing down the attackers before they even come up onto the city in order to besiege the city and attack it. The mountain clansmen aren't going to defeat the large force that Stannis is bringing to the fight But Tyrion isn't planning for them to do that anyways. Instead, they're following in the footsteps of their historical forebears as far and wide as the desert fighting employed by Arabs and seen dramatically in Lawrence of Arabia, Mao against the Chinese nationalists during the Chinese Civil War, the Viet Minh and later Viet Cong against the French and Americans in the Vietnam War, the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, and of course, most recently, the Iraqi and Taliban insurgencies against the Americans during the War on Terror. Hit-and-run raids, killing scouts, attacks on weak points and baggage trains, night raids, and inflicting terror by hanging dead Stannis loyalists from the trees. Classic guerrilla stuff, bro. Classic. Now, the point is not to win big battles here, like I was saying, but rather to tire Stannis' army out and then use terror to in order to weaken Stannis' resolve before he hits the walls of King's Landing. And what better place to do that than the Kingswood, the great forest south of King's Landing? If you're going to recall from Davos's second chapter, which we, again we covered in 13 parts. Stannis is a mostly cavalry-based force, which is mostly comprised of knights, lords, squires that all raced with Renly from Bitterbridge to Storm's End. All of those trees in the Kingswood Forest then provide cover and concealment for ambushes by Tyrion's mountain clansmen. These guys can strike quickly from seemingly nowhere and then melt back into the woods in the darkness. Additionally, the terrain works against Stannis' knights as countermobility as Stannis can't mass his cavalry and pursue the attackers once they strike. So the question is, does this work? I mean, it's kind of unclear whether the clansmen were actually able to do everything that Tyrion wants them to do. Sansa's going to note in her next chapter that Stannis' army is burning the woods in an attempt to deny the clansmen the use of the terrain for their raids. But also the clansmen were burning the woods too. Why the latter? I'm actually not entirely sure. I guess I got to read up a little bit more on, on counterinsurgency tactics of burning forests. I don't think that's actually, a, unless they're reading, you know, the Michael Caine line from, from The Dark Knight. Which <laughs> that's what I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll take 10, 10 years after the, after the fact. But yeah, I, I don't know. Moreover, Stannis' army hits King's Landing with a ferocity that doesn't speak to a terrorized, exhausted army. And again, as I'll emphasize, size to the point where you're going to hate me saying it. Stannis actually wins the Battle of the Blackwater until he doesn't. However, in one key place, the clansmen succeed. Tyrion specifically instructs Shaga to kill Stannis' scouts. And boy, is that ever going to have an impact on the Battle of the Blackwater as Stannis won't have advance warning of Tywin and the Tyrells riding for him through the smoke and darkness until it's way, way too late. Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly. That's where the payoff happens. And that's where uh, sending the clansmen out has an impact, even if it's in a way that Tyrion never expected. And Chaga tells Tyrion that, you know, he's familiar with these tactics, man. <laughs> this is how they fought, the Knights of the Vale back in the Mountains of the Moon. But Tyrion points out that the environment has changed, and so Chaga will need Tyrion's guides, some locals who know the forest. And Chaga agrees before setting out. Tyrion has managed to cross a cultural bridge, if only in a military context, <laughs> and now they part. Tyrion suddenly feels lonely and afraid, powerless without physically stronger people to protect him. That optimism sours in the face of context. Even as Tyrion wields his power, part of him feels like he's leaving himself vulnerable, and this will culminate with Mandon Moore betraying him during the Battle of Blackwater itself. Throughout this chapter, we see that Tyrion feels threatened not only from the outside by Stannis, but from the inside by his family and the people and his own underlings. 
Without the clansmen, he has to rely on bronze sellswords. Tyrion has near 800 of them now, and he's buying the loyalty of the most promising ones with all his usual tools. Gold, wine, and the promise of knighthood. It's a significant force, and Tyrion's tactics are smart, but they have limits, as Bronn tells him. The sellswords will kill for him. They will not die for him. And that gets at the palpable tension in King's Landing these days. No matter what the Lannisters do, they look like they're on the brink of losing, and that's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because power is a shadow on a wall, residing only where men believe it resides, the appearance of winning or losing creates its own momentum. These sellswords will only fight for Tyrion if he appears to be winning, even though them fighting for him is how he wins. Mm -hmm. That's the complication of politics, where you have to create the appearance of victory first in order to be able to achieve it at all. Jocelyn Bywater makes the same argument regarding the Gold Cloaks, Tyrion's other major force in holding the city against Stannis. Cersei inflated the numbers of the Watch to make herself and her children feel safe, just let open the doors to anyone who wanted to walk in, but that ignored the actual substance of cohesion and discipline. The core of Robert's a City Watch is still in there, but they're outnumbered by cravens and traitors who will only fight hard at the beginning and if they're all winning. As with Bronze sellswords, losing will have its own momentum. Bywater tells Tyrion that the first to run will be followed by all the rest. And even the core of the Watch are guardsmen, not dedicated soldiers. As far as, you know, real fighters go, <laughs> Tyrion only has a few hundred against Stannis' many thousands. It's a grim state of affairs. It absolutely is a grim state of affairs. And what, what Tyrion suspects will happen when things go pear-shaped against, against Stannis is actually what happens to Cersei in A Feast for Crows. Tyrion is right, just what happens with Cer his sister instead. When Cersei is arrested, all of her ostensible allies flee her. Tyrion goes back to Longtable for a family visit, of course. You know, she's going to go bye-bye for a little while. And Arrayne goes out to sea, you know, for a little, you know, kind of check out how the waters are going, how the, how the ocean is these days. <laughs> and Cersei's small council is completely reorganized by Uncle Kevin, Mace Terrell and Randall Tarley, people who are not necessarily friendly to Cersei. This is the ultimate problem with Lannister rule. It's wide, and it grows wider by the end of a clash of kings, but it's extremely shallow. The moment the first spear gets thrown down and someone runs, it spooks everyone, and they're all getting out of dodge lest they be caught holding the bag. Everyone knows that the Lannisters think of them as disposable, and as a result, the Lannisters are disposable to these guys, right? I mean, that's the thing, the, the thing about... The Lancers, if they keep looking at all these disposable assets, as we've been talking over and over again, people are going to start to look at the Lancers as disposable, too, and their loyalty to the Lancers as additionally disposable. Who needs who? That's one of the great questions of politics, right? Like, who actually is relying on who here between these different factions and these different parts of society? And as Tyrion thinks through these challenges, he keeps falling back on... Tywin's advice on Tywin's favorite sayings, even though he loathes Tywin. <laughs> Part of this is just familiarity, of course. Tyrion knows Tywin's style better than he knows anyone else's. This is what he has to fall back on, as with Jaime in the Riverlands and A Feast for Crows. But the other part of this is that Tyrion still wants Tywin's approval, which he's been denied literally from birth forward. So Tyrion asks himself what Dad would do in the belief that doing so will make Dad love him. But it doesn't, and that wounds Tyrion deeply when we get to A Storm of Swords. It certainly does. And we continue to build to the culmination of Tyrion and Tywin's relationship, where Tyrion declares that he is Tywin writ small. And here, Tyrion is acting in Tywin's stead as Hand of the King and tries to puzzle out what Tywin would do in the circumstance, because Tywin is the Uber Lannister and the patriarch of, I said Westeros here, but of the Westerlands and, of course, of House Lannister. And there I love is, Westeros in a way, too. I, I think it works, the way yeah. he thinks of himself, certainly. Right. Yeah, I'm all a, of your dad. Right. I'm all of your disapproving, terrible, shitty father. Right. Punishing dad. Exactly yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. 
and and I do think, but I, I do think there is to give Tywin the smallest amount of credit I could possibly give him. I think there is a <laughs> some logic in the way that he is talking about having one man on the walls is worth 10 beneath because walls act as a force multiplier. And this is going to be something that is basically going to save Tyrion's ass at the battle of the Blackwater itself. But as we're saying, the Lannisters are always, they're always not just Tyrion, but Jamie and Cersei too are always falling back on Tywin for everything. There's a cold certain logic in how Tyrion, Tywin plays at war and politics and Tyrion attempts to emulate that. But emulating Tywin doesn't actually net long-term good outcomes for the Lannisters. We need only to look at the city under Lannister rule to see some of that. The city, a city again, that is presently very close again to starvation, a starvation caused in part, but not wholly because the trolls also play a part in this in Tywin's war fighting in the Riverlands. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the ripple effects of that here in King's Landing. This chapter parallels Tyrion 9, the riot chapter, in how it opens. In both these chapters, Tyrion says farewell to someone leaving on a boat, Marcella back then and now Shaga. And then in both chapters, he makes his way through the docks back to the city. But things go differently this time, to say the least. And why is that? The conditions haven't changed. The people are starving. No food is coming in except fish, as Tyrion notes, and the price for that is rising exponentially. Even those with coin can't always afford to eat, and those without can only hope to beg or steal. It's a harsh portrait of poverty made worse by war. Nor has the people's anger evaporated since the riot. Tyrion hears hears curses as the gold cloaks force a path for him and someone throws a rotten fish. So what has changed? Political action is part material conditions and part collective emotion, but it's also always a lightning-in-a-bottle situation that can't necessarily be replicated. The specific combination of that parade, that dead baby, Joffrey being that awful, and potential agents by provocateurs like Varys, of course, all of that makes what happened in Tyrion 9 just pretty much impossible to repeat in Tyrion 11, even though all the ingredients are still there. The anger of the people at what has been done to them will come to the forefront once more with the Sparrow movement. And I think George understands that all political sentiments experience ebbs and flows. What ensures the continuation of mass anger, even if it's dormant for the moment, is the behavior and worldview of the powerful, including Tyrion, despite him generally being more thoughtful and compassionate than his sister and nephew. Tyrion looks at children with swollen bellies fighting over rotten fish and does not think, what a ghastly sight. (laughs) I should feed them from my own full plate. Mm. Instead, he looks at their homes and their families' businesses, their warehouses, their brothels, their bait shacks, everything that makes up the lives of them and their neighbors, and decides that he's going to burn it all to the ground. Now, Tyrion is not doing this for his own sadistic delight like his uh, father Eris, you could say. No, he is, he, is, he is a sound logistical basis for his actions, as he lays out. He was a deal less pleased by the clutter of ramshackle structures that have been allowed to grow up behind the quays, attaching themselves to the city walls like barnacles on the hull of a ship. Bait shacks and pot shops, warehouses, merchant stalls, alehouses, the cribs were the cheaper sort of whores spread their legs. It has to go, every bit of it. As it was, Stannis would hardly need scaling ladders to storm the walls. Tyrion has to do this to hold the city, and he's not the one who allowed these structures to be built up in the first place. He gives orders that no one be killed, that Bronn make an effort to prevent anyone from being raped, that they be allowed to hold on to whatever property they can carry out of there. This is how Tyrion tells himself that he's the good guy, or at least not the actual bad guy. That's always someone else. It's Joffrey or Cersei or Stannis or Jano Slint or Maester Pycelle. But the original sin of the power structure itself infests everything Tyrion does and how he thinks about it. So practically speaking, he winds up being a villain anyway. Hmm. Tyrion does not make the slightest effort to relocate these people and their businesses. He does not indicate he will compensate them at all. Right. And 
when part of Fleet Bottom burned back in Tyrion 9, Tyrion hand-waved away, saying, well, most of Fleet Bottom can burn. That's fine. We can, we can dispense with that. And now he wants another section of the city destroyed. And at one level, we can see the logic. I mean, these buildings provide a way for Stannis' army to easily gain access into King's Landing. And if Stannis gets into the city, King's Landing is lost, and so is the Lancer cause. I mean, good riddance in our parts. But again, from Tyrion's perspective, it's a bad thing, right? But he doesn't provide the small folk a place to stay. Like, say, I don't know, the big-ass castle known as the Red Keep that's there in King's Landing? That seems like a good place for these, these people to stay in. Now, interestingly, there was a time when the Lancers allowed the small folk to stay in the Red Keep, though. In Season of the Throne show, you guys remember that? It was very briefly mentioned that Cersei brought the small folk into the Red Keep there. But it wasn't to protect them from the threat of war. It was rather to protect her from the threat of war. Ah, those Lannisters hate him. And criticisms of season eight caveats aside, there I think the show really nailed the Lancer dynamic because ain't that the Lancers to the T in using humans to shield them from the shit that they do. And I also think too, in addition to looking at what the Lancers are doing and using people, I think we're also supposed to contrast this to our our friend, your friend and my friend, Ed Mirror of House Tully and how he conducted himself at River Run. Edmure brought as many small folk as he could possibly bring into this castle to protect them from the predations of war that the Lancers were bringing. Edmure was also on the defensive with a hostile army coming for him in the form of Tywin, but he wasn't the aggressor in that fight. That was the Lancers. Now, Tyrion might think that he's on the defensive here, and while that's kind of true approximately, the Lancers are the larger offenders, as is with most things that are happening in A Song of Ice and Fire proper. The Lancers helped to kill Robert, stole the throne, and installed a tyrant onto that throne. Remember that? That happened in Game of Thrones. And then they took what little food was coming into King's Landing to feed their own garrison, clansmen, gold cloaks, and sellswords. And now they're tearing down the businesses and homes of small folk, depriving additional starving residents of King's Landing of their livelihoods and also their lives, too. In a scene that's gotten this desperate, this starving, Small disruptions can mean life or death for the small folk. And this is not a small disruption. You know, this is creating homelessness, unemployment, and feeding additional resentment of the Lancers when they need less resentment and more love of the people, right? Yeah, no kidding. I'm reminded of what Varus said in Tyrion's last chapter about how the man who castrated him then said he supposed Varus should just go die. Tyrion really doesn't care what happens next to these people. It's academic. That's his worldview on loan from Tywin, who never even considered what happened to Tysha after he had her raped. Bronn, the peasant in the room, points out that the people aren't going to like this very much. <laughs> Tyrion responds that, eh, they'll just keep hating the monkey demon. What changed? This is a perfect example of how Tyrion takes his reputation as a given rather than something he can at least partially influence. There is nothing he can do about people hating him for his stature, and that hatred is indeed unjust. It eats away at him every day of his life. But Tyrion uses that as an excuse to ignore how he's abused his own power and made his reputation worse. He has avoided every opportunity to broadcast his best decisions and minimize his worst ones. For all his talk about outplaying Ned Stark, and not without merit, he has in this regard failed to play the game at all. If the people fight back, see that they lose, Bronn. <laughs> Tyrion acts like an occupying force while telling himself he's defending the city. It sets the pattern for the build-up to and outcome of the Battle of Blackwater. Tyrion's efforts rot from within, he's robbed of the victory he made possible, and then is left a victim of his own terrible reputation in A Storm of Swords. That is extremely true, and that is the Tyrion Lannister story in the first three books of, of A Song of Ice and Fire, but especially Clash and Storm. 
And I understand it from an optics perspective uh, about, you know, banning rape. So why not take the optics one step further and declare an edict from the Iron Throne banning the practice by the sellswords? Or hell, if Tyrion doesn't want to give Joffrey the credit, why not issue a declaration from the small council itself? And in declaring this edict, why not also come out with, you know, something like punishments for those who commit these types of crimes against the small folk? Notice that Tyrion doesn't mention punishments for past rapes or even punishment for future rapes. Come on, Tyrion. The impression we're left with is that if you commit a rape, your punishment is a solid finger wagging from Bronn. Whoop de shit. Tyrion thinks he's being the hero here, doing the right thing in contrast to Joffrey and Cersei and Stannis, as you were saying. But all he's really doing is nothing. Nothing much at all. Tyrion might as well have been banning the Celsius from murdering people. Ooh, don't murder people. That's against the law here. What's the punishment? I don't know about that. <laughs> There's no teeth to this order that he gives to Bronn. And to bring it back to Stannis, as we often do here on the Nauticast podcast, at the very least with Stannis, he punishes his men who commit rape when his army shows up at the wall. He gelds them. That's the bare minimum. Tyrion is doing less than the bare minimum here, and it sucks. The Lancers just suck. Ugh. I totally agree. It's this this flip-flopping thing with justice where it's like Tyrion does nothing, Stannis arguably does too much, and it's like somewhere <laughs> in there you find the Starks are the closest you get to like, you know, they're, 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 they're very hard when they need to be, but also their constant focus is on the renewal of life. And the Lannisters and the Baratheons, eh, they never quite seem to make that work, let alone mm-hmm. the Greyjoys. You can really sense the desperation underneath Tyrion's I'm in control of things facade when his thoughts turn to how things were going in the wider war. He would trade all his preparations for thicker and higher walls, he thinks. But then again, thicker and higher walls don't seem to be saving any castles these days. They didn't save Storm's End, nor Harrenhal, nor Winterfell. These have all just fallen. So what good will these walls be to the Red Keep? Surely this castle is going to be next to fall, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just just to pause here for a second, because I, I just think this is just stellar writing on George's part, because it reflects how people's actual thought patterns work. I mean, Tyrion sees that there are structures outside the walls of King's Landing, which makes him think that he needs to make the walls less easy for Stannis' men to get over, which then leads him to think about Storm's End and Harrenhal and then Winterfell. I mean, people are never going to cite this passage as an example of George's stellar writing ability, but this is real writing shit reflecting the thought patterns of real people. It's a subtle way that George makes his world feel alive and real to us as readers. And again, that's always to George's, not just our, our benefit, but George's, uh, a testament to George's ability in writing the story. Yeah, great. He's, he's structurally, he's um, he's weaving it together so well, I think, and in, in, in planting each piece of the bigger structure in each POV's mind, and yeah, that makes it just a, a really good coherent story. And Tyrion specifically dwells on the fall of Winterfell, which is weird, as he tells himself. <laughs> that's the one of the three. That's good news for his side, after all. The Lannisters lost Harrenhal, and the fall of Storm's End means Stannis can march against them. The fall of Winterfell hurts only the Starks. Tyrion's thoughts about Winterfell, however, don't have anything to do with the practical, strategic concerns that dominate the rest of this chapter. He's thinking about Winterfell not as a square on the game board of thrones, but as a distinct place with its own mood and history. Just as that feeling of dread he experienced atop the wall with Jon in Book 1 lingered in his memory, so too does the sense he got of Winterfell. It wasn't as huge as Harrenhal, nor as impressive as Storm's End. Its strength seemed to come from within the stones, as if it were alive. As such, the news of its fall came as, quote, a wrenching shock, as if the law of nature has been inverted. Same goes for Winterfell's new lord. Tyrion cannot picture Theon Greyjoy, the callow, cynical fuckboy he briefly met in Book (laughs) 1, as the lord of Winterfell, even though practically speaking he is. 
There is a weight and gravity to Winterfell that transcends Theon's conquest of it. Tyrion knows that the Godswood is the heart of it. It's an ancient place bearing witness down through the centuries. The heart tree is frozen in time, as Tyrion puts it. It outlasts us all. Our petty machinations fail and fade before that kind of power, and that kind of power has made the Starks, not the Greyjoys, Lords of Winterfell. This is also probably a legacy of Tyrion's initial storyline, which involved him, not Theon, being the one to attack Winterfell. Had George gone with that plan, these emotions would be at the forefront, not in the background. Regardless, Tyrion has to shake his head and dismiss these thoughts, not only because he's showing sympathy for his political enemies, but also because this kind of thinking undercuts his entire worldview. What did he tell Varys in his last chapter? That he believes in money, violence, and men's wits. And by that standard, Theon is Lord of Winterfell now. But by another standard, Theon is a pretender. Tyrion cannot help but respond to that logic even as he dismisses it. What he saw of the North made an impression on a primal level beyond language and rationality. It's the magical-slash-religious side of A Clash of Kings poking its head into Tyrion's storyline, where the political and secular side generally rules, and he, he just can't quite escape it. He can, and I think it's it, it's interesting. Tyrion's reverence for Winterfell is almost religious, right? Which is in contrast to his angry or humorous skepticism he normally has for the gods, really anything ethereal. And this contrast is so sharp, especially when compared with Tyrion's interactions with the new High Septon that we're going to unpack here in a few moments, that I'm inclined to think that this is George giving evidence that something religious and magical is real in A Song of Ice and Fire, namely Winterfell. Another aspect of it is that this is a spot where we see George seeding events down the road, namely that Tyrion is likely, almost definitely going to return to Winterfell towards the end of the story. Now, a version of this did appear in the throne show, but as with many things with Game of Thrones' later seasons, Tyrion's version of Winterfell, it occurred, it definitely occurred, but in a different context and with less of an emotional impact. I think when Tyrion comes back to Winterfell in A Dream of Spring or The Windsman, or likely A Dream of Spring in my opinion, I think we're going to see more of an emotional punch there because Tyrion is somewhat sympathetic to the Starks. And really, it's not Tyrion banning rapes that makes him sympathetic and relatable in the story. It's actually his sympathy for the Starks that really makes him a much more sympathetic character, in my opinion. And that sympathy for the Starks bleeds out into his reverence for their living space. And I think that's the one moment of Tyrion's story where I'm like, okay, maybe there is a redeemable aspect to Tyrion Lannister after all. Yeah, well, it's supposed to be his fragile heart, right? His connection to other people and a, and a, a better way of life. He could be outside the family. And, you know, it, uh, it it flickers in the background throughout these early books. It's going to be interesting to see how it gets developed. Mm-hmm. So Tyrion, Tyrion brushes past some angry ship captains on his way to see the new Kingsguard receive their cloaks. George is carrying a bunch of different small ideas he had for scenes into this chapter pre-Battle of Blackwater. He does a good job of capturing how busy Tyrion is, behind on a dozen tasks, always running late, always angering someone, no matter what. This mini-scene also reinforces how turbulent the affairs of state and market are right now. As with the sellswords, Tyrion has to trade on the promise of victory, but here he also acknowledges the possibility of failure. What if we lose? Well, then you're going to apply to Stannis for your compensation, (laughs) I guess. And regardless of how that goes for them, the wheel just keeps turning. No one depends on the Lannisters being in charge, except the Lannisters. Mm -hmm. So they have to try and bind people to their side, offering favors and threats that those people won't get from any of the other competing factions. Similarly, the people seeking favor from the Lannisters always have to keep their options open in case the Lannisters wind up the losing side. We saw that with Vargo Hote and his bloody mummers at Harrenhal, and we see it again with the new Kingsguard, Balin Swan and Osmond Kettleblack. Tyrion frames Balin Swan to us as the ideal knight, valiant, courtly, skilled at arms, 
and highly mourn. Couldn't ask for a better Kingsguard. But then Tyrion reminds us of the context. As Davos told us earlier in the book, not all the Stormlands houses were eager to join their liege lord Renly. Some held back out of the uncertainty I mentioned regarding how the war would go, and prominent among those weathervane houses is House Swan. <laughs> lord Swan stayed out of the war and dispatched his two sons two different sides, one to the Lannisters, one to the Baratheons. It is a strategy that carries its own risks, of course. What if the winning side is pissed off by your equivocating? But given how quickly the politics shift in the War of Five Kings, there is definitely wisdom to this move, especially if Balin plays his role to the hilt. On the surface, Sir Balin Swan is a fantasy made flesh. Behind the scenes, the dictates of power and the uncertainties of politics are more complicated. The same dynamic applies to Osmond Kettleblack, but in a different way. He too fulfills the basic function of a Kingsguard, as he's big and strong and can presumably get in the way of an arrow. He, too, however, has a loyalty problem. In his case, it's not a noble family divided against itself. It's a lower-class family that is united, but hopping among patrons. They sell Cersei out to Tyrion, Tyrion out to Cersei, and both of them out to Littlefinger. <laughs> Osmond is no more honorable than the coward Boros Blount. The ceremony preserves the shadow on a wall, but Tyrion sees the cynical currents underneath and points them out to the reader. Right, and Tyrion has taken the lesson he received from Tyrion too, when he wonders whether he replaced Littlefinger's man, which is Janos Slint, with Varys' man, Sir Jocelyn Bywater. Now, Lord Jocelyn Bywater, I should say. Of course, like you're saying, Osmond isn't really Tyrion's man. He feeds Tyrion choice morsels, like Varys did to Cersei Lannister, but he's truly Littlefinger's man, as we come to find out in A Storm of Swords. And that's really what's at work with Tyrion. Sure, he's smart, and he plays a cynical game relatively well, but he's actually not really a top-tier conspirator in King's Landing. We're going to revisit that character beat at Chapters M and Varys shows up, but Tyrion's more second-tier, more more middle-class. He's not a heavyweight boxer, so to speak, when it comes to conspiring in King's Landing. And I think that's because he has certain blind spots, but he's also being set up to fail in certain ways by his father. So it's, yeah, it's, it's half his own instincts and half just the context he's in. Hmm. As we've been saying in these chapters, Tyrion, you know, has his own blind spots, particularly regarding Shay. He wants to catch a glimpse of her now as Lawless is made, even though really that would risk them both if anyone sees Tyrion straining to make eye contact with this random woman. <laughs> he can't help it, though, as he couldn't help writing to her romantically in his last chapter. This is his Achilles' heel, the complicated loyalty that he keeps secret as the Swans and Kettleblacks deal with their own. And like the Kettleblacks, Shay keeps focused on climbing the ladder of class, even while feigning loyalty to those already at the top. Shay would rather be a lady's maid than a pot girl and wants to bring jewelry along if she can. She will push any inch of advantage, just like the political players. Tyrion wants his life with Shay to be an oasis, an exception to the rule. But it isn't. It can't be any more than it was with Tysha. So Tyrion turns back to his true mistress, the Game of Thrones. The new High Septon is his own appointee and knows enough to stay in line. Tyrion makes expert use here of the Faith as an institution and the High Septon as a mouthpiece, declaring anathema upon Stannis and Valor. Tyrion wants to spread the rumor that Stannis plans to burn the Great Sept of Baelor. The High Septon asks if that's true. Tyrion doesn't know and doesn't care. He just knows that the Faith are way more popular than the Lannisters, and the people will fight harder to defend the former. It's another untrue rumor that the Lannisters spread about Stannis, as with the rumor that Patchface fathered Shireen. I am less sympathetic to Stannis in this case, however, because he is leaning into this intolerant reputation. As Tyrion says, Stannis burned the godswood at Storm's End. He didn't have to do that, politically speaking. He did it to appease Melisandre. If he hadn't done that, it would be much less likely that anyone would believe Tyrion's lie about the Great Sept. He might not even try to spread this lie in the first place. The irony here is that Tyrion, as we've seen in this chapter, 
shares this same fault with Stannis. Both constantly reinforce their bad reputation, because they think of it as something out of their control. They use the unfair aspects of their reputations to let themselves off the hook for the fair parts. Tyrion is smart enough in this scene to weaponize the power of the faith against Stannis, but he can't seem to ever bolster his own public image. And as always, with both Stannis and Tyrion, it comes down to family. Stannis thinks no one can ever love him because his brothers didn't. Tyrion thinks no one can ever love him because his father didn't. Personal fears and desires are always caught up in political machinations, and vice versa. Yeah, you're right about that. Tyrion is very much acting what he th- in, in Tywin's stead and for a father who doesn't love him, despite the Tyrion's massive and unrequited attempts to, to gain his father's affection and love. And Tyrion, to get back to the High Sept a little bit, Tyrion only thinks of the High Sept and the Faith as a weapon he can use in his political machinations without regard for what politicizing the Faith will do in the long term. Yeah, it does make sense that Tyrion would wield the Faith as a weapon against Stannis, and you could draw that line of thought from Tyrion's third chapter in The Clash of Kings when he saw the letter from Stannis that concluded with, quote, done in the light of the Lord. And Stannis's burning heart, burning of the heart tree at Storm's End also reinforces that aspect. Of course, readers should be aware that Stannis has a quasi-tolerance for the Faith of the Seven. His best friend, really his only friend, Davos, is a follower of the Faith, and he'll later promote him to lordship and hand of the king despite him not renouncing the Faith of the Seven and joining with R'hllor. But with Stannis, there's always on there's always an on the other hand, and we see that here at Storm's End, and later in the Storm of Swords, when Melisandre tells Jon Snow to burn the Winterfell Godswood as part of the exchange to be named Lord Jon Stark of Winterfell. Getting back to weaponizing the faith for political purposes, this is another spot where Tyrion is seeking a short-term advantage with long-term disadvantages for the Lannisters. The High Septon will eventually be murdered by Sir Osney Kettleblack as Cersei will come to believe that he is Tyrion's creature. Not without, you know, terrible cause, but I mean, uh, he, he's not necessarily in that instance. But this, his legacy will live on. The High Sparrow who follows in this High Septon's footsteps will continue to politicize the faith, albeit independently independent of direct orders from the Lannister regime and to the d- direct detriment of said Lannisters. Moreover, Tyrion will tell Tywin in a storm of swords that his high septum barks like a trained dog and thinks of this as a really good thing. It's not. The small folk of King's Landing just murdered the fat high septum during the riot, and the subtext is that they that tying religion to the crown is leading to the people thinking ill of the high clergy. Now, this, this is a problem with secular politicians using religion as a sword. Like sorcery, there is no safe way to wield it. Stannis is fighting this out with Melisandre's Red Hawk at Storm's End, and the Lannisters will come to find this out with the faith. Come a feast for crows. The Falcons cannot hear the Falconer. Once you let forth these these forces, you can't always control them. Like like uh, Duran Martell says about words that he says to Ariane, you know, words are like arrows. Once you loose them, you can't call them back. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Duran Martell, Tyrion returns to his solar to find old news from the Prince of Dorne regarding the fall of Storm's End, and also an offer of alliance from Balon Greyjoy. Tyrion regards the offer as intriguing, reading it several times, but ultimately is unsure what to make of it, and does nothing with it. You could see that as a failure on Tyrion's part, but I am more inclined to lay the failure at Balin Greyjoy's feet. No one plays the game worse than the fifth of five kings. As Tyrion notes, Balin is demanding he be allowed to hold on to a huge amount of territory, (laughs) resources, and people that the Iron Throne currently claims. After all, Balin is not threatening the Lannisters, saying he'll raid their lands if they dare challenge his rule in the north. He wants a friendly alliance, wherein the Lannisters voluntarily accept his rule of the North. And why on earth would they do that? What are they getting out of it? 
Tyrion points out that their ships are too far away to be of use against Stannis. Moreover, as Tywin says in A Storm of Swords, Balin went about this all backwards. He should have he should have written to the Lannisters first, offering to attack the North in exchange for being allowed to hold on to whatever he conquers. As it stands, he's already fighting the Northmen. So why should the Lannisters give him anything when he's already provided his value to them? Right, and even then, Balin could have said something like, if no alliance can be reached between the Iron Throne and the Sea Stone Chair, I'll be forced to stake my claim further, perhaps onto the Westerlands, Lannisport, and Casterly Rock. So not only has Balon failed to make the offer of alliance before attacking, he's also failed in his second attempt to put any teeth into this offer to the current regime of Lannisters. How ironic is it that Balin mocked Theon for his diplomacy, declaring that he will take his kingdom with iron, and then he comes hat in hand to the Lannisters for a peaceful alliance. And he can't even do that right, because <laughs> the old way never taught him how to conduct diplomacy properly. It's doubly ironic in context with Duran's letter, which Tyrion thinks of as old news. Balin's letter is equally old news, equally useless, because he seeded the negotiation before it started. From there, Tyrion moves on to a different kind of negotiation, with Halline and the Pyromancers. Their offer also seems too good to be true. Even when Tyrion gets positive news, Winterfell has fallen, the Ironborn want to be our best friends, we have more wildfire than we expected, he can't help but dig for the bad news. And this is part a, a pragmatic approach, but it's also just cynicism. In part, Tyrion is right to be skeptical of Halline. The Pyromancers don't seem trustworthy or on the ball in general, and this is well ahead of their projectures. projections. Is this a grift? Tyrion wonders, out loud. <laughs> the Pyromancers offer a partial explanation. Lord Rosser left some wildfire lying around. Yikes. As with the starving children, earlier in the chapter, Tyrion recognizes that this is less than ideal, but filters everything through his own power, so he doesn't see it as disastrous. Rather, he zeroes in on Halline's deception. That still doesn't account for the increase in production. Halline says they're working hard, and Tyrion pulls the ultimate manager move. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're working hard now? Well, why weren't you working hard before, huh? Anyone who has ever worked for anyone else knows this move. Yep. It's why, perversely, you often have an incentive on the job to do less than your best, because otherwise your best is a standard you will be expected to meet every single time. But Tyrion enjoys being in charge too much to realize he's laying down this perverse incentive. It's too much fun to watch Halline go pale. Tyrion has experienced so little power that he's come to love the taste of it. Right, and when Tyrion talked about loving the Game of Thrones for its own sake back in Tyrion 7, he framed it as role reversal. He loves how everyone mocked and scorned him, but now they have to bow their heads and defer to him. When he sits atop the Iron Throne and loves how tall he feels, he is relishing the role reversal a bit more. It's, it's a theme for Tyrion, and here Helene has to bob his head and go pale as mushroom because Tyrion can have him killed with a word. He has all these murderous sellswords about him, after all, as we've talked about, and they wouldn't flinch from stabbing this guy to death with zero repercussions or consequence. But Tyrion remains a dwarf and remains looked down upon by societal prejudice. Bronn, impudent as always, doesn't care that Tyrion is a Lannister and Hand of the King, and even tells Tyrion that they should just, you know, kill Joffrey and put Tommen onto the Iron Throne to Tyrion's horror and anger. And Bronn, what does he do? He just laughs him off. Jason Bywater, less impudent, doesn't shy away from telling Tyrion that he things he may not want to hear. Now, consider how all the Westermen are all going Helene with Tywin at the War Council at the end of A Game of Thrones, quivering and dodging responsibility while under Tywin's intense gaze. No one speaks Tywin the way that many people speak to Tyrion. No one throws rotten fish at Tywin Lannister either. Tyrion has grown frustrated that even with his new position, his last name, he really can't intimidate anyone the way that Tywin could with just a single look. 
So Tyrion focuses his frustrations on Helene, projecting it out because this guy is both the ultimate yes man and also easily spooked, unlike Bronn and unlike Lord Jesslyn Bywater. Very easily spooked, and he breaks down into excuses about his spells and ultimately can't explain why they're working better than they are why they're working better than they were. Perhaps there are dragons around? Dragons supposedly make the spells work better. This revelation backs up what Quaith said about the fiery ladder back in Danny 3. Her dragon birth acted as a magic rejuvenator the whole world over. Even across the world in Westeros, the pyromancers are rediscovering the tools of wonder and terror thanks to Danny bringing dragons back. It's the rising tide of magic in A Clash of Kings to match the expanding political struggles. Yet even when looking it in the face, Tyrion can't recognize it, any more than he did with Alistair Thorne warning him about the apocalypse earlier in this book. Tyrion simply does not believe in the old powers, yet he makes use of them all the same, just as he doesn't really believe in Joffrey's power, but backs it up anyway because he draws his own power from Joffrey. This radical increase in wildfire output is what makes his Jade Holocaust, as he thinks of it, on the Blackwater possible, even though Tyrion doesn't actually think about that until it happens. <laughs> he doesn't think about his chain in this chapter either. George is holding back on these elements, so they hit with the requisite amount of surprise at the Battle of Blackwater. But it also suits Tyrion as a POV. Whatever he doesn't want to think about, he doesn't. Whatever contradicts his self-image as a rational man, trying his best to do justice in an unjust world, he hides away in his subconscious until he can't anymore. Jocelyn Bywater's report also gets at those barely, those, those barely buried contradictions. Tommen hmm. is hale and happy now. Why? Because he's away from Joffrey. He has a fawn as a pet to replace one Joffrey had skinned, like he's a Bolton. <laughs> Tommen asks about his mother and sister, but never his brother. That's the king for whom Tyrion is doing all this, someone who is tormenting his sweet, innocent brother. Right, and a spot out here is that Joffrey skinning the fawn for a jerkin, it reads as a psychopathic way that an abused child would attempt to win his father's approval. Something that we saw, again, we'll, we'll revisit again in A Storm of Swords with what happened with Bran and sending the cat's ball after Bran. Or, you know, if this act of cruelty was done after Robert was dead, it's Joffrey attempting to emulate Big Daddy Bob's love of hunting. You know, again, we're seeing Robert's lack of care and love for his son bleeding out to his son's actions in this part of the chapter. It's interesting. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the next Sansa chapter, how Robert is now functioning as this this ghostly standard for people. Like Sandor weirdly brings up Robert in the mm. next Sansa chapter and saying, yeah, Stannis isn't half the man Robert was. Robert wouldn't ever let a river stop him. Which is like weird. You don't think you usually think about Sandor as like hero worshiping anybody in particular, but Robert is just kind of haunting people now that he's dead, and that that plays out in very different ways for someone like Ned versus someone like you know Joffrey. Yep. And so this chapter ends as it began on a comedic note. Varys walks in saying, "Men are such faithless creatures," which, as Tyrion notes, is a hilariously overwrought way to walk into a room. What happened to <laughs> "Hello, how are you?" Men are such faithless creatures. What do you speak in sonnets? <laughs> the humorous tone continues as Tyrion laments that one of the traitors Varys has come to warn him about is the armorer who promised Tyrion a helm with demon horns. Oh no, Tyrion was really looking forward to that. <laughs> Under the surface, however, the destabilization of Lannister power continues. As Cersei notes in Tyrion's next chapter, many of these traitors are wealthy and influential. So this is not the same kind of anger as we saw with the bread riots. Rather, these antlermen, as they call themselves, are specifically Stannis partisans. Not because they love him, but because like the Bloody Mummers, like Bronze Sellswords, like Lord Swan, they want above all to be on the winning side. 
And that's the big theme of this chapter. What does the winning side look like? How do you know which side is the winning side before it, you know, wins? <laughs> and then you can't choose anymore. It's too late. The Antler Men decided that the Lannister side does not look like the winning side. Balin Swan, Jocelyn Bywater, and Bronn made a different call. It's always in part a projection. We see that with the Antler Men themselves. Tyrion notes that their name is all wrong. Stannis doesn't fly the crowned stag anymore. They should call themselves the Hot Hearts. <laughs> it's one more joke that cuts deep when you actually think about it. Stannis can't even take advantage of his own natural coalition. They're not even calling themselves the right name, even though they're trying to be loyal to him. During the Blackwater, Davos wishes they were flying the crowned stag, not this stranger's banner. No loyalties stay true in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 11. The image and the substance never line up. And all Tyrion knows how to do is keep playing the game until he wins or loses. And at the end of this book, he's kind of done both at once. Absolutely. And you can really see why the Bertrand class is allegedly, allegedly turning traitor, which is just so fucking ironic, on the Lannisters. I mean, the Lannisters look to be the losers in this war at this point and are proving thieves not only of the throne, but of the property of people who just happen to have the things that the Lannisters need, want. Getting back to those ship captains from early in the chapter who petitioned Tyrion for redress about their seized ships, you know, governments appropriating shipping in war is a common practice in the real world and in Westeros. Stannis takes his ships into service as soon as they sailed into the Dragonstone Harbor at the start of a Clash of Kings, as Crescent notes. Paxton Redwine takes over a thousand merchant ships into his service for his massive Redwine fleet. Find out what happens to them in the second coming part five, our Patreon episode, which is out now for Sworn Swords and is out for Poor Fellows tomorrow. I'm recording this episode. Now, usually the lords who impound these ships plan to return those ships after the war is done, or they'll compensate them if the ships are sunk during the war. But Tyrion is subverting the normal practice of war because he ain't planning on returning though any of those ships back to their captains. And given that the crown is practically penniless, having incurred again massive debts due to Littlefinger's deferred interest scheme during Robert's Rebellion, see our episode on Eddard 3 from A Game of Thrones, Eddard 4 rather, Tyrion isn't planning to pay the captains back after he kabooms their ships on the Blackwater either. Now, it may seem minor on the grand scheme of things, but I think it speaks to the theme with the Lannisters in destroying every possible norm in order to gain a short-term advantage in luring Stannis' fleet into Blackwater Bay. But the long-term consequences will be felt long after Tyrion has, left, has fled the city. As for these alleged antler men, let's talk about that for a second. Tyrion, <laughs> again, as I was saying, remains a second-tier conspirator in the pl and player in the Game of Thrones. And one of the chief reasons is that he is entirely reliant upon Varys to gather intelligence for him, despite knowing that Varys is not entirely trustworthy. Were these men truly going to open the gate for Stannis' army when they arrived? Maybe. We don't know. And neither does Tyrion, right? He can only see what Varys shows him. And Varys will keep his true intentions, which is, of course, seating young Grift onto the Iron Throne, hidden for now. He'll reveal them later in A Dance of Dragons via John Connington. Now, Varys may have been working towards that end here with the Antler Men setting up the way for Young Griff to take the Iron Throne. Because what better way to stir up long-term trouble for King's Landing and seed the path for Young Griff's arrival than removing the Bershon class and stirring up resentment among that class of people? Additionally, in removing these people, we don't get Varys or Tyrion saying, And so the incumbent lands of these traders are now forfeit to the crown. What that means is that the heirs of these merchants will likely inherit both the resentment of their fathers and their money too. I wonder who will be opening the mud gate to young Grift come the winds of winter. Damn, that was great. I think you, you laid out exactly kind of the net of, of, of deception and reality here. And 
what what may seem like a, a provincial power play just you know to get get some get some debtors out of the way get some inconvenient enemies out of the way that could have real rem, real ripple effects because like all these all these players think they can just end the game when they want to you know conveniently that they think they're always going to be in power that's what Stephen Atwell's criticism of Tyrion was he acts like he's always going to be in power and none of them none of them really have these contingency plans for when the, the consequences of their actions all catch up to them and you can see that even on a even on a minute scale with these these supposed traders these supposed antlermen here <laughs> and yes I, I think you laid that out great so Moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork. There's a ton of that in this chapter because as you've been kind of gathering, this is, George is just setting up a lot of things that are going to be coming uh, for, for later in the story. Bywater describes the at length the lack of discipline among the gold cloaks. That a lot of them are as green as grass. There's cravens. There's traitors. You can't rely on them. And yeah, he himself is going to die as a direct result of that lack of discipline come the Battle of Blackwater. So that's a that's a sad irony there. It's like he he laid out his own death warrant without even knowing it. Right. And I think like the, the aspect too is that everyone's throwing down their spears and Jaslyn is telling them all to like get back into line and get back into battle. And then they immediately pull Lord Jaslyn Bywater down from his horse and kill him mercilessly. It's 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 a sad end for Jaslyn Bywater, who is one of the really the only few stand up characters in Tyrion's storyline in A Clash of Kings, if not the only one. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's yep, that's gonna leave him so kind of alone and, and, and deprived and have it all just feel kind of nasty in his mouth come a storm of swords. So, another uh, bit of foreshadowing here, Rossert's wildfire that gets mentioned here. That's going to come back when Jamie reveals Eris's plans. Inter- interesting, this comes right after the House of the Undying, where we saw Eris give the order. So, it seems like George is laying down a lot of foreshadowing for this one, this idea of, of Eris giving this order and it being hidden. That it was really strong in his mind. Exactly. And George has also said that there are additional caches of wildfire hidden in King's Landing by the end of A Dance of Dragons. He said this in an email to a fan in 2013, I want to say. So... That is going to come back into vogue in A Storm of Swords with Jamie's arc, as, as we'd find out in Jamie's sixth chapter in A Storm of Swords, and it's also going to come into significant focus uh, towards the end of the story when Daenerys Targaryen comes to King's Landing. Yes, this is, again, just something that's in the background here, but will become so much more prominent you know, later on. Georgia's just having kind of fun slipping into the background in, in, in a chapter like this one. Mm-hmm. So when, when Tyrion thinks to himself that, now that Winterfell has fallen, Rob is going to have to return from the west and go north. He is he is right about that. Of course, Rob doesn't make it that far. <laughs> As we're going to be talking about in later chapters in Clash, though, what's really what really screws over Team Stark in regards to the north is not that Theon takes Winterfell, it's that then Ramsay comes along and sacks it and covers up what happens. If Sir Roderick had survived and defeated Theon, the north might have been able to recover much quicker from what happened. Right. They still would have to get past Victarion at Moat Kaelin, but Rob seemingly had a really good plan as we're going to talk about when we get to a Storm of Swords to retake Moat Kaelin from the from the Greyjoys that are positioned there. And of course, Victarion is likely gone by that point in time because the King's Mood actually occurs during the timeline of a Storm of Swords, something we'll talk about more when we get to that portion of a Storm of Swords proper. Uh, another thing here is that the trebuchets, I kind of glossed over this in the summary, but they're called, the quote, the three horrors by Tyrion's men. And this naming convention was seemingly something George decided to revisit in A Dance with Dragons and The Wind's Winter at the Battle of Fire. As the six trebuchets the Yunkai have brought up from Yunkai, actually they didn't bring it up, they brought the wood up and they constructed the trebuchets on site of Marine, are all called the Six Sisters. So again, we were saying this in the pre-episode and that what George is doing with the Blackwater is that he's very excited about getting there. And I think he starts to revisit that when he's talking about the second siege of Marine and decides to turn up to 11. So not, not only, there's not three trebuchets that are defending King's Landing, or defend, there's not three trebuchets that are attacking Marine. There's now six trebuchets. They're called the Six Sisters. It's bigger and better. And yes, that's a real world thing of course is um soldiers attaching you know uh, they're anthropomorphizing often in a crude sexual way their weapons or, or ships that they're using that's obviously a 
you know, a thing in the real world, but even more so in kind of the stories we tell about armies. That's that's a constant refrain. It absolutely is. And Tyrion also notes that a prince died from drinking wildfire without, without saying who this prince was in the chapter. But Jorah Mormont actually told the story to John back in John's first chapter. And I'm kind of curious because we were coming we're coming off of the House of the Undying chapter here. Was this reference intentional because it's maybe referencing Arian Bright Flame and the potential of him being the Mummer's Dragon or maybe even uh, maybe even being the person who breathes Shadowfire, so to speak, being of the Bright Flame, so to speak, in the, in the story? I'm not sure, but I think it, it is a potential hint to where George was potentially taking the story before he ended up deciding on the Blackwaters after he finished publishing A Clash of Kings. I think it's possible. He's writing these things in clusters as they occur to him. This is something uh, Stephen Atwell has noted in his essays on A Storm of Swords, is that the first couple mentions of the Blackfires come right in a row in A Storm of Swords. Mm. Davos 4 and Jamie 5 is when the Blackfires are first mentioned. So clearly this George hit this, this idea and wanted to start laying the groundwork for it right away. So I could definitely see that being a similar case here. Absolutely. And Helene talks about Wildfire being much more potent stuff and asks if there's Dragon Spout as they cause the substance to be more potent. Now, if you've read the books, you'd know that there are dragons about. I'm surprised for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time without having read the first book known as the Game of Thrones. And this is one more moment where George is setting up the dragon apotheosis of King's Landing come the end game of uh, most likely A Song of Ice and Fire, but also Dream of Spring 2. Similar to how we were talking in our most recent uh, Patreon-only episode on the Forsaken, we were talking about the, the some of the stuff in the prologue to A Feast for Crows setting up that a dragon could arrive there. I think a similar thing is going on here in King's Landing. Mm-hmm. And then Tyrion notes that Tywin is not dead yet. Again, George was planning for Tywin's death as far back as the Game of Thrones. And we get another note here that Tywin's end is coming. And soon. Yes. The, uh, obviously, George's, you know, builds up to Tyrion killing Tywin. is one of the big dramatic, you know, Greek tragic theatrical scenes of the whole series. But yeah, he also, he layers in enough that it's, it's, it's a, it's a surprise in visceral terms, but it's not surprising in emotional terms because of how, how well it's built in that, that Tyrion kind of hates Tywin and at some level wants him dead and, you know, wants to be the one to kill him. And then it just all comes to the surface. Speaking of Tywin, he is going to take another crack at Balin Greyjoy's letter. This comes back in the Storm of Swords. <laughs> and suffice to say, he doesn't take it well. And while I think Tywin's reputation as a Grandmaster is somewhat overstated, he does rely on luck a lot of the time, as, you know, as all politicians do. I, he does he does dethread Balin wonderfully in this scene of the Storm of Swords where he just looks at this letter and goes, why would I ever do any of this? This is ridiculous. Right. And it, it also helps that he has his own plans for the North. But Tywin does see through the Ironborn, and that's a really funny moment. I mean, Tywin doesn't have to be the most masterful of, of conspirators or schemers or politicians to to outsmart Balin Greyjoy. I mean, <laughs> half a brain cell will do. That's true. Right. You just need half. Just half. Not a full one. Just half. Not even. Yeah. Half will do. Mm hmm. So, moving into the theory and discussion, there's not a lot of, you know, deep, trenchant, thematic, philosophical issues in this chapter. It's much more kind of plot-focused, and here's what we're doing. So, but, it, but we do uh, bring up this kind of new thread that's going to develop in the background of King's Landing politics, and that is these new Kingsguard knights. And so I thought we should discuss, how do you think these knights are going to lose their cloaks? Because Balin Swan and Osmond Kettleblack end up Kingsguard because, you know, of the, the, the death and betrayal of other Kingsguard knights, and... You know, it keeps going around and around. Everyone keeps losing their cloak. So how are, how are Balin, Swan, and Osmond's Kettle Black going to make their untimely demises, Jeff? Right. So Balin, Swan, as we know from A Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons, is dispatched down to Dorne to deliver the mountain's head. Uh, ostensibly, that's what he's, he's doing. That's all he's doing, right? But as Doran Martell reveals in The Watcher from A Dance with Dragons, he also has a second purpose, namely to ensure that, um, what was it, that he's, he's trying to kill... They're, they're going to try and kill 
uh, Tristane Martell and also potentially kill and blame it all on Tyrion as well as they're trying to right. transport Marcella back. And but then Dora Martell is able to sidetrack Balin Swan by sending him off with uh, with a with a bar of sand to hunt down Darkstar in order to uh, satiate the vengeance demanded for the maiming of of Marcella because they're, the, the Dornish are blaming the, are blaming Darkstar for for Marcella's maiming. So that that's a it's an interesting um, take. I, I think Balin Swan is, is doomed uh, is likely going to meet his end, uh, likely at Ariohota, the business end of Ariohota's axe. I mean, where have we seen this before? Where uh, the, we've had that aspect come through uh, of people meeting of, of Kingsguard members meeting the business end of, of Ariohota's axe. Oh yeah, Eris Okard, who has also had the same thing happen to him. So very true. Yeah. It, Balin Swan is, is doomed. So what, what do you think is going to actually happen with Balin Swan? I agree. And if you look at Ario Hota's POV in The Watcher, which Girlstone Canada did a wonderful job going through mm-hmm. not too long ago, uh, it's, it's, it's clear that he's not only just t- picking out Balin Swan as a target, but I think if you read between the lines, it feels like Duran has already ordered him to kill Balin. Like oh, yeah. that. I mean, there's, you know, it's... it's because when Ariel looks at Eris Oakhart in A Feast for Crows, he thinks to himself, ah, I feel like I'm going to fight you. I don't know why, but I feel like it's going to happen. <laughs> That's not what he says about Balin in Dance. He says him up like, yeah, we're, we're going to fight. That makes me think mm-hmm. like, especially since we see later in that chapter, Duran is dispatching everyone, has plans to deal with everybody. It's like, I think Duran has already given this order that Ariel Hota, yeah, you and Obar, you're going to take Balin's one out for a nice long walk. A nice, you know, nice long walk off a short pier down over at Starfall. Make sure he doesn't come back. I think that that order has been explicitly or implicitly given to Ario Hoda. And I think he says to himself that Balin's going to be a harder fight. So I imagine mm. that's going to be the difference. You know, Eris Hokart committed suicide by Ario Hoda, basically, mm-hmm. in A Feast for Crows, as Ariane thinks to herself. Balin's going to be an actual fight. So I think that'll be... I think George will get to enjoy having himself a duel there. But, you know, a duel around Starfall, the Danes, R plus L equals J, the duel with the Tower of Joy. I think it's going to... George is going to try to evoke, I think, you know, kind of some of these oh, yeah. things with the death of Balin Swan. And I think too, like, was it that that Ariohota says is that Balin's going to hide behind his shield and stay behind his shield, as opposed to Ariohota, Hokar, of course, charged, charge, which yep. yeah, a little bit smarter. Which I think to me thinks that I, I think, given the fact that you have Obara there, Obara might be operating, maybe with Doran Martell's favor, I guess, so to speak, in, in helping, uh, in in helping Ariohota kill Balin Swan. That one will, you know, get him behind the shield. The other will come around the other side. So it seems like the way that they, you know, the, the, that fight can actually go down. But again, yeah. it's 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 it's, it's interesting as, as we get like you know farther and farther beyond a Dance of Dragons and waiting for the winds of winter. I think this is one of those storylines that are becoming increasingly uh, increasingly hopeful about and and hoping that we mm. see a lot more from the storyline. I think we are likely going to see a lot more from this storyline come. Come the wins winner. But that takes us to, of course, Sir Osmond Kettleblack, our six this foot jabroni. Six. Yeah, jabroni is, is the best word of uh, putting about him. So so Osmond at the end of a dance with dragons has been imprisoned by the faith. And Kevin Lannister thinks in the epilogue that if he admits to his crime, he is going to send him to the wall. Now, is he actually going to admit his crime? I actually think he could, which is interesting because that sets up something between Osmond Kettleblack and potentially Jon Snow come after John's resurrection, how John is going to perceive this Osmond Kettleblack type character. I'm, I'm curious if we're going to get sort of a reprise of what we saw with um, when Janice Lynch showed up at the wall, um, when, when Jon Snow was there. We have the original, the, the John basically thinking that this guy is a piece of shit, because he is a piece of shit, of course. Also having him show up too in in a similar vein, and also knowing that he's might be one of Cersei's creatures, and this uh, this guy might be showing up there. So I'm curious how you think how you think Osmond Kettleblack is going to meet his untimely end come the Winds Winter 
most likely in the Winds of Winter. Now, remind me, it's Osni is the one that Cersei uh, says, you're going to go to the wall and kill Jon Snow for me, right? Yes, Osni's okay. the one, yeah, because he also murders the High Septon. He's the one, and then he's Septon, the one who gets tortured, right. Um, so that would be, uh, I think, a wonderful irony if a different Kettle Black Butter <laughs> ended up being sent to the wall. I kind of like that. I don't, you know, I mean, there's John has already has so many enemies and plots to deal with. And as you said, this kind of feels like a retread of Janos Slint. The things with the Kettle Blacks is like they are supposedly actually loyal to Littlefinger. And yep. I feel like that has to pay off somehow. I don't think they're going to be useful to him because that's the whole, the Kettle Blacks are useless. Like that's the whole thing. <laughs> but. I feel like either that has to be revealed or Littlefinger has to try to pull off a gambit with him that fails and that's how they get they, they get killed. I don't think it has to be a big thing. I don't think there's really room for it to be a big thing, but I feel like that has to factor in somehow. And then once that's done, I think the Kettleblacks will be removed from the board. Like if any of them are still alive, once things start blowing up in King's Landing, then they're going to die when things start blowing up in King's Landing. Yeah, I, I could see that as well. I, I, I just... You know, George has talked about that the Kettleblacks, he's he's specifically cited them by name as being characters that were not featured in Game of Thrones and are going to have some sort of major impact on the Fair story enough. going forward. That's but true. I just, but I'm with you. Like, I, I just don't see, like, the major impact of them, of, of what they do. I think the other thing that Kevin says is that if they don't actually uh, go to the wall, that he's going to face them off against uh, Sir Robert Strong. So I, I, That would be funny. those. Yeah, wouldn't that be hilarious to have Osmond Kettleblack six foot six facing off against you know an eight foot tall undead giant? I think that would probably be um, uh, it would not go well for for team uh, for, for team Kettleblack. It, it's not it's going it's not going well for any of the Kettleblacks. So all three of them are in jail at the end of a Dance of Dragons. Yeah, it's it's not going to end. And like, like I was saying earlier about about Balin versus Osmond, is they kind of embody two different classes dealing with the same problem of loyalty. Mm. Like Balin Swan, this is how. This is how the well-established noble families deal with, like, divides in the Civil War. Like, okay, you go over there, and you go over to this side, and no one's going to talk about it. And then we're just going to, you know, whoever survives, you just take one step forward, and you're Lord Swan now. And with the Kettle Blacks, it's just like, no, we love you. We're all about you. You know, cut to five minutes later in a room with someone else. (laughs) No, we love you. We're all about you. Because that's, you have to be sycophantic in in their position. So I think that's what's interesting about these two is, like... They have the same kind of goal and they're dealing with the same problem, but they, they were raised to deal with this problem so differently. And they're both right. going to fail in different ways. Right. And then the failure is, is, is the fun part about, about the mm. winds winner, I think, is as we get into <laughs> yep. that story. I mean, I think like so much of a feast for crows and a dance with dragons are all about, well, the, the, the storylines of Peter King's Landing are all about the downfall of the Lannisters. As we see from this chapter, like feeding directly from events from this chapter. And now we get to the point where we're at, we see even more of their failure come, come, you know, the wind's winner. We'll have Cersei's initial triumph in winning in her, her, her trial by battle against, uh, whoever the Faith's stooges, most likely Lancel Lancer, in my opinion. And then we have that, the ripple effect though, where, where they have one minor success and a bunch of major failures just rippling its way out throughout the storylines, throughout the Lancer storyline, throughout the wind's winter and likely culminating in a dream of spring with, of course, uh, Jamie likely being the one to kill Cersei and Jamie dying thereafter. As always, you go with from the small uh, plot point to the, the big picture really well, sir. That's the, you do that better than anybody, so totally agreed there. Oh, right in my heart. You hit me right in the heart. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's hard to hit Jeff in the heart because it's such a small target. You know, it's like it's <laughs> it's like hitting the bullseye. It's very difficult. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's, that was a great rejoinder, sir. As always. So thank you so much for listening to this episode on A Clash of Kings Tyrion 11. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, and of course, 
you know, give us a thumbs up on YouTube if you're watching these live streams. And of course, subscribe and do all those types of things as well. We really appreciate all of you folks who are watching, 71 of you at this point. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of ice and fire .com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kavoth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, and Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids. Thank you as always so much to our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely, thank you all so much, and I appreciate you I'm at reading all these names now. It's all becoming even longer, almost as long as the not a small council. So I have, I have so much fun saying all the names, especially Kaboth the Unfrozen and So Will of the Anarcho Syndicalist Commune. Lots of fun little syllables. So, as always, oh, yeah. we love you folks. We thank you for your support and we enjoy your titles. Absolutely. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Theon 4. Hell yeah? In which Theon's master plan has somehow. I, I know you're going to find this shocking, but it's somehow already fallen apart. How did this happen? It falls apart so quickly. And, you know, it's it's a cliche to call any kind of uncomfortable chapter a nightmare. But this chapter of Theon 4, I think, really captures what a nightmare feels like. Like every, every detail making things worse and more confusing, and it just doesn't stop. So we'll have a good time? <laughs> we'll have a time. We'll, have, we'll a time. have a time. We'll all laugh at Theon together and then be horrified by Theon's actions at the end. Exactly oh. right. Oh man, yeah. Don't trust in um, Reek. Reek. Yeah, don't trust in. Already, the hairs are standing up. Mine too. So, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of you who are watching, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>